I gave Neil a little bit of a scare this morning by running late. I was just trying to convince him that I was already on the summer schedule. Uh, I think I almost got him. Uh, we are on the summer schedule next week, so if you come at 845, you'll have a great time of prayer by yourself, and that'll be good too, but be sure to note the times. Something that we missed out on in this area is the experience of a genuine skyscraper. I've lived this area my whole life, and in Washington, D.C., you can't have a building taller than the Washington Monument by regulation. And so while we have lots of these stately buildings that look very official, we don't really have any very tall buildings. So it's always a little striking to me when I go to a city that does have tall buildings. I feel closed in, but I'm also just sort of like, wow, that's not something I get the experience of. We were in New York City back in April, and of course there we were just surrounded by towering buildings everywhere we went. And the last morning, the last day we were there, we went to the top of the Rockefeller Center, which, if you've ever been, has this spectacular view of midtown Manhattan. So Central Park, Empire State Building, very cool place. It's not necessarily the most popular tall building to go up, but the view is, is kind of unparalleled. But one thing that's kind of neat is that as you prepare to visit what they call the top of the rock, uh, there are exhibits along the way that describe the construction of Rockefeller Center during the Great Depression. And it emphasizes the point that this was an enormous financial and architectural risk to take at that time. And so it begins by describing the small group of people who, who took the initial vision and then developed it into specific plans, the architects and, and so forth. But then it really makes a transition and it makes it clear, right? Those individuals, for all their good work, just made documents and plans. They did not build anything. And so then it talks about some of the 40,000 people who were involved in the construction of Rockefeller Center in the midst of the de Depression, people from all the different trades and, and types of work. And I know many of you, I didn't, I'm not showing it because it's copyrighted, but you can Google it up. Many of you have probably seen the iconic black and white photo uh, of steel workers perched on a single steel beam, 69 stories in the air, eating their lunch, or in the case of one guy drinking his lunch. <laughs> I don't even want to think about how that works out, but uh, I do encourage you to look it up. But, but the point is, those are the people who actually turned the vision into reality. It wasn't the architects, it wasn't the visionaries. What begins as one person's vision and, and then becomes sort of written plans through the work of a small team ultimately has to be built by a much, much larger group of people, or it just doesn't happen. This is also true in the church. What begins with a God-sized vision built on Scripture and then is articulated by a handful of people trying their, their best with God's help to put it into words will not become anything real unless the larger body of the church truly embraces it and comes together to make it happen. That's the juncture we're at right now as Lake Ridge Baptist Church. After 14 months of congregational meetings and prayers and deliberations and drafts, we have adopted a vision that I believe absolutely captures God's will and vision for this church. Because it takes the Great Commission and then it applies it to our specific time and place. It's fresh for today and yet 
as we were going through final rewrites and drafts, it is strikingly consistent with the founding principles that are actually written up in our church constitution. If you'll recall, I have summarized it with eight words. God's lighthouse, that's two words. And then the three pillars, welcoming in, building up, and reaching out. So I pray that everyone in our church will learn these eight words. We'll remember these eight words that we as a church will live these eight words, and that we will share these eight words with others. But now we need to turn this vision into reality. And that's not just the work of the pastors and the deacons and one or two committees, right? If we are going to be transformed by transforming the community around us for God's kingdom, It's a task for each and every one of us, those who are here today and those who are on vacation today. So as we begin to implement the vision, as we change gears from a focused work on getting ready to now actually doing, I want to reflect on a portion of Scripture in which one man had a vision, something, not a literal vision, but a sense of what needed to be done that distressed him. There was a problem that needed to be solved. It was clearly laid on his heart by God. He was blessed by God to implement it. He shared it with the people of Israel. They embraced it, even in the face of hardship, and then God blessed their work in an extraordinary way. And the passage that describes this begins in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, and it runs to the end of chapter 3, but in the interest of time, I'm actually just going to read selected verses out of chapter 3. I would encourage you to go ahead and read the rest of chapter 3 on your own. On the surface, it looks like one of those long lists of names that make us want to skip over it, but there is actually very interesting things going on in the different sections. But I'm going to highlight a few of them as we go through. Nehemiah says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us. And despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up and with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 7. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. I'm going to jump again to verse 11. 
Malchijah the son of Harim and Hashub the son of Pahath Moab repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. And in verse 28, above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. Nehemiah contains a lot of valuable lessons on a variety of different subjects, things like how to apply spiritual practices to solve hard problems, things like godly leadership, but particularly of interest today, how to implement a vision in a God-honoring way, and we in fact see that vision implemented as God protects and enables and empowers the people of Israel, to accomplish a truly God-sized task. They rebuild the entire wall of Jerusalem in 52 days under constant threat of attack. And so I want to briefly reflect on four lessons from Nehemiah related to how to implement a vision. It seems pertinent. So the first, as we go into this passage, is that we must present the vision and see that God is already at work. Nehemiah does this to begin his speech before the people of Israel. Verses 17 and 18 say, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. That's the vision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Now, the task that Nehemiah is setting before the people is enormous. But the vision was simple. Build the wall of Jerusalem. Likewise, our task is enormous. But the vision is simple. Become God's lighthouse for Jesus Christ in this community. But because the task was Simple to summarize, but difficult to do, Nehemiah knew that it was important to give the people assurance that God was in it. So he shared how God had been working in his life, how he had been opening doors to make this possible. He shared how God had even directed the wealth and might of the most powerful man on earth, the king of Persia, the pagan king of Persia, to make this happen. I would suspect that every man or woman on the vision team, the 2020 vision team, could bear witness, and you've heard some of them share in the past, as to the way God's presence and provision and sovereign guidance appeared every time we feared we were about to get stuck or lose steam or break down completely. But more than just that, from a pastoral perspective, I was even more encouraged every step of the way, knowing what we were talking about, because I could see the way God was working in people's hearts, people who were not a part of the vision team, to raise up people who had a passion for what would come to be called welcoming in, building up, and reaching out. Clearly, God has been preparing hearts and minds for this specific vision since well before there was ever a vision team. And so while our task is daunting, it is different, it is uncomfortable, it is filled with uncertainty, the vision is clear, and God has amply demonstrated He is still with us, preparing us and leading us into the future. Now, as Nehemiah continues, the second lesson is that the people must commit to the vision. 
verse 19. He's finished explaining the vision. He has explained how God is working, and it really he turns it over to the people. And verse 18 concludes, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And as you read chapter 3, you see name after name of people. You see different professions. You see family groups all working to build the walls and the towers and the gates, even though they are under constant threat of attack. At, at times, they are having to work with one hand and the other hands on their sword. Everyone pitches in. Well, almost everyone. There's one group we read about that doesn't get involved. But for the most part, everyone pitches in. The rich, the powerful, the priestly class, the working class, the craftsmen, men and women. We see people from the local neighborhood building the portion of the wall by their house, but we also see people pouring in from, from cities and towns across Israel to do their part. The people of Israel committed to this vision, and they did not waver. This is the point we're at as a church. I want to be clear. Right? We have presented a vision. We have shared what God has done. We have officially adopted the vision, yes. But the walls of Jerusalem haven't started going up yet. God is at work, but our response is vital. Success or failure is going to be determined by whether or not we truly commit as a people. Because if you look at Nehemiah's time, without the energy and the strength of all the Israelites, the walls were never going to get rebuilt. They had actually been back in, in Jerusalem for decades without having dealt with these walls. Likewise, without the energy and strength of all of us in LRBC, we will never become God's lighthouse. We will stay as we are. So it's wonderful that we have written fine documents about the vision. But if we, the people, aren't really committed to it in our hearts, the vision's not going to happen. We're just going to keep doing the same old thing, in the same old way, with the same old results. So I'm going to ask you, and I know we had a time of commitment on the Friday night, but if you're here, it's another chance. If you're not here, it's your first chance. I'm going to ask you to commit this morning, but I am not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to speak up. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand or to write anything down because it doesn't matter if you commit before other people. This morning, I'm going to ask whether you will commit to the Lord in your heart to do your part to make this vision a reality. And I know that if you have been reading these documents carefully, and I hope you have, you have questions about how, how all this is going to work. Because I have questions about how, how all this is going to work. And I've been paying attention all throughout this process and reading all these drafts. I got questions. But I also want to be clear that as you look at the examples throughout the Bible, and there's way too many to talk about this morning, God seldom reveals all the details and all the steps that are coming ahead in your journey when he calls someone to do something hard. Abram left his home in Ur with absolutely no idea where he was going. He was just confident that God would bless him. 
God doesn't give all the details and all the answers we'd like up front. So despite that, are you willing to commit? And I know that this vision is daunting, that it is difficult for a church our size. But because the vision is just the Great Commission applied to our place and our time, Jesus has guaranteed us that he will be with us every day that we are living this vision out. So is that enough? Are you willing to commit? So I'm going to stop talking for about two to three minutes. That might be a relief for you. And we will just have a time of silence, two to three minutes, where we can each wrestle with this question. And we may not, you may not come to an answer this morning, and that's okay. Because you've got lots of other minutes to talk to God about this. But I want you to use this time to truly talk to God. Are you willing to commit in spite of doubts and questions and misgivings? And if so, then I would urge you to make that commitment to him. You don't need to tell me about it. This morning's conversation is between you and God. Are you willing to commit to this vision? Don't let me rush you along if you're still working on this. If you're still working on this, you can keep working on this while I talk. You can take this home and work on this in the days and weeks to come. This is incredibly critical. If this vision is to happen, it happens because the people come together to make it happen. But as we continue through the passage this morning, we encounter a third lesson that I think is important for us to bear in mind. Expect opposition, but be confident in God's support. In verse 19, the foes of Israel, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, these characters show up a lot in the book of Nehemiah. They mock them, they despise them, they suggest that they are rebelling against the king of Persia. This is not a light accusation. Later on, if you read the whole book of Nehemiah, you'll see that they try to attack him. They threaten attacks on Jerusalem. These These are a bad group. But Nehemiah takes it in stride in verse 20 because he is completely confident in the Lord. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. Right? He's he's echoing the language of the people here, but making it clear up front, this is God who does this, but that he works through people. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had total confidence in God, and as we see the book of Nehemiah unfold, he was right to, because despite constant opposition, the people of Israel work diligently, day and night, they complete the job in 52 days. The thing that is cool about this is that it was so fast that everyone in the surrounding countries, all the unbelievers out there, recognized that only God could have done this. And so the very act of fulfilling the vision was a testimony to the world, the unbelieving world, to the living God of Israel. So like Nehemiah, we need to be confident in God when we encounter opposition. Because we're going to, right? If we really go out and do this, and we are making a difference in our community, 
for God's kingdom, we will absolutely be opposed by some because the enemy hates a church that is effective in proclaiming Jesus Christ to the lost. But the point is that if we're focused on building the kingdom and sharing the love of Christ through both word and deed, we should have total confidence because this vision, as I said before, is really just the Great Commission applied to our time and our place, which means that what I think is one of the greatest, most special promises in all of the Bible applies. And behold, I am with you always. And literally, that's all the days to the end of the age. Our Savior is with us every day if we are doing his work. The final lesson that I want to look at this morning is that while this work of making a vision a reality requires a common effort by all the people, each person also has specific tasks within the job. See, everybody in working in Jerusalem was part of one big effort, rebuild the wall. And there were certain common tasks, probably deal with clearing rubble and moving rock, that everybody did. But then each person or group had different tasks. They were responsible for specific parts of the wall, particular structures. Some built gates and set doors. Some built towers. Some built a piece of wall. A vision that has many moving parts, whether it's the reconstruction of the, the walls of Jerusalem or the building of the Rockefeller Center or, or the transformation of this church into a lighthouse for Christ, takes place because each person does the particular work they're called to do. So we need to realize that we have both common tasks that we are all supposed to be doing as part of building God's lighthouse, and then there are things that we are uniquely called to do. And the vision is only going to be successful in proportion to our obedience to God's calling on our lives. So let's talk about the 2020 vision and find our place building God's lighthouse. Because we've got the vision, right? That's lesson one. We know God is in this place. That's also part of lesson one. Hopefully we are in the process of committing if we have not already. We know it's going to take each of us working together in obedience to God's calling. So what is our task? What is your task? Let's briefly look first at the things that every single one of us is responsible for doing simply because we're disciples of Jesus Christ. And that begins with praying. And not just the kind of praying where we're praying for our sick friends. That's important prayer, and we should do it. But we need to, if we haven't already, expand the range of our prayers to take more of a kingdom focus look more at God's perspective. We need to be praying for our neighbors, for our community of faith, for faithfulness in making the vision a reality, for wisdom, because there are so many questions and unknowns, for unity, because nothing causes division like questions and unknowns, for spiritual protection from the devil. We need to become prayer warriors for God's kingdom. And throughout this series, I've described things that we all need to be doing, right? With regard to welcoming in, we're each to love God, our neighbors, one another, to worship fervently when we gather, to greet anyone we don't know, to introduce ourselves, to help them get oriented, to find a place, to love one another more faithfully, more practically, to find someone to mentor us and someone we can mentor. With regard to building up, we are supposed to be growing closer to God and becoming more Christ-like, and we do it by 
integrating the classic spiritual practices into our hectic daily lives. With regard to reaching out, we should be getting serious about thinking, oh, I'm coming to church, who should I invite? Oh, I'm going to a Bible study, who should I invite? Start inviting people to Sunday morning, to Wednesday night, to home Bible studies. As Peter said, to each be prepared to explain our joy and confidence in Jesus Christ. But then there's the second category of things. The things that we are personally called to. The role that each of us has in making this vision a reality. Every single believer in Jesus Christ, whether you are a kid, whether you are a teenager, whether you are an adult, whether you're a senior adult, you have a place in making this vision a reality. We each have a role to play. Each of our roles is a little bit different. None of them is more important or less important. They're just different. What you're called to do is different from what I'm called to do. What you're called to do is probably different even from what the closest person sitting near you is called to do. You might be called to become a welcomer, that friendly face that that gives a smile and, and welcomes somebody in to make a good impression for the glory of God. You might be called to visit the sick or the mourning. You might be called to be a tremendous prayer warrior or a teacher. Someone out in the community welcoming in new neighbors or tutoring after school the at-risk kids from Rockledge. So here's the question I'm getting a lot. What are your next steps? Where's your place? How do I get involved? First, pray. Pray for God to reveal where to get involved. Every believer is going to be built up. That's part of the vision. But do you have a particular passion to help build others up? That may be where you're being led to. Every believer is expected to welcome in anyone that they've never met before, but are you on fire to really help newcomers connect with the body of Christ? That might be your area. Well, every believer should be able to embrace Jesus, explain Jesus, and embody him. Are you particularly passionate about getting out there and making new friends in the community and building relationships and serving them and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? If so, that's probably where you're being called. So that's the first thing. Pray. Where is God calling you to get involved? I firmly believe there is a place in making at least one pillar happen for every single person here, that you are being called to at least one pillar in a unique way to build that up. So the second part of getting involved is to get involved. Right? That seems stupid, but we need to be proactive. Seek teams out. Don't wait for the engraved invitation. Because one of the things about moving to a ministry team approach is it's about people who are on fire, people who have a passion for a certain thing, not us trying, like tapping on the shoulder and trying to drag you into a committee meeting. So if you are feeling a passion, seek out others feeling that passion and get involved. Now, in your phone book-sized bulletin today, there's one thing here that says, what's your passion? So this is one way to get involved. Fill it out. Could be today, could be next week, whenever. And turn it into one of the pastoral team. Turn it into me, turn it into Neil, turn it into Mark, turn it into Philip. And we will make sure that as teams form, 
you get notified. That's especially important because we're in summer, as you might have noticed. People come and people go. But we're going to be forming teams over the next few weeks, and so it's not the end of the world if you miss the organizational meeting, but we would like to be able to tell you, hey, this happened, and you should start talking to so-and-so when you get back. As a church, our next step is to is to begin forming the pillar implementation teams. And those, if you remember the diagram in the back of the, the vision book, uh, there's three of them, one for each pillar, and they're kind of responsible for steering the overall efforts within that pillar, all the ministry teams that, that make up welcoming in, all the ministry teams that make up building up. They really get ownership, if you will, of those initiatives under that pillar. There's three or four initiatives under every pillar. They'll be identifying the goals we go after as a church in 2017, 2018, and beyond. Where there are gaps, they will seek to identify new ministry teams. And where we have existing teams, they'll be coordinating and aligning those teams. So it's meetings, right? Not necessarily everybody's cup of tea, and that's okay. But if you are feeling called to that, if you're like, hey, that might be something I want to get involved with. You'll see in the other insert in here, this 2020 vision insert, right? That there is an interest meeting on July 9th. That's a Sunday in the sanctuary. That's here during the Sunday school hour. That's 945. If you're interested to get some initial orientation and just start letting the teams begin to form and organize themselves. Again, you don't have to attend, but if you feel like you're maybe being led to join a pillar implementation team, right? You're not signed up just because you show up. But if you feel like you might be being led in that way, this is a really easy way to learn more, explore the interest, and decide whether it's really something God's calling you to do. If you're not here on July 9th, we got that covered. Fill it out. Let us know so that you can get plugged in with the group when you get back. So that gets to the third thing that you hear me hinting at. Stay informed. Right, I've been in this church for 17 years, I think. Right, the constant complaint from many people, and maybe it's more acute in my generation, is nobody told me. Well, it was in the bulletin for week after week. It was in an email. It's on the website. We talked about it in church. The pastor preached on it, and we had a meeting. I can only help so much. So stay informed. If you know where you're being led, stay informed so you can find your place. So we got a lot to communicate over the next few months, only a few ways to do it. So just try, try, try to stay involved, stay plugged in, stay reading this stuff. Uh, but one thing I do want to highlight, it's also mentioned in here in this brochure. The vision coordination team is going to start hosting monthly vision status town halls. It's a time to share progress, but then you guys can ask questions, whatever you want to ask. First of those is going to be July 16th. It's over lunch in the fellowship hall, so we got all afternoon. You can just ask for hours. The second one is going to be during Sunday school on August 20th, so it's a little bit time-boxed. Fourth way to get involved. If you're part of an existing ministry team, committee, council, work within your team, pray, talk, start aligning to the vision. But what I really want to encourage everyone to do in every group you're in, whether it's a huge group or a small group, is talk to one of the ministers and invite some members of the vision coordination team to come join your next regularly scheduled meeting. 
because we would love to sit down with you and, and hear your plans and hear your concerns and, and answer as many of your questions as we can and pray together and talk about the future and talk about how your ministry can become even more effective and powerful by aligning with all the other ministries and activities of the church. I am not exaggerating and I'm not being sarcastic when I say that we literally want to sit down and spend time with every single ministry, committee, council that will have us. And I hope that's everybody. Sometime this summer. And finally, step out in faith. I know that God has something specifically prepared for each and every one of us to do in making his vision a reality. So if you feel like God is leading you down a particular direction, it could be like wacky, like not at all what you have done. All right, this is a good opportunity where if you've been pigeonholed your the last 15 years, you're only I only work children's ministry or I only work youth ministry. It's a good opportunity. If God is leading you in a different direction, just go out in faith and do it. See where he'll take you. The point is that the time has come for each of us to find our place in God's will and his vision for Lake Ridge Baptist Church. He is moving here. This is an exciting time. And just like in Nehemiah's time, it's time to strengthen our hand for the great work to which we're called. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is an exciting time and it's a scary time. You have made clear what you want us to do. You've made it clear from the time of the Great Commission to now. Lord, help us to be a people who will embrace that. Reveal to us each individually where you would have us go, how you would have us serve. Show us our portion of the wall or the tower we're to build the gate we're to set, Lord, and let us rest comfortably in the assurance that you are with us as we serve you faithfully. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.